Welcome to Mission Daily. This is producer Rachel Kanya. Today, Chad sits down with John Arrow, co-founder and CEO of Mutual Mobile, an agency that designs and develops breakthrough digital applications for the Fortune 1000. Mutual Mobile was named by Forbes as one of America's most promising companies in 2011 and has since produced award-winning apps for Google, Audi, Cisco, and many more. John himself has emerged as one of the most promising young CEOs in the past decade, being named to Forbes' list of top 30 CEOs under 30. He started Mutual Mobile in 2009 from a small apartment with his fellow UT Austin classmates and bootstrapped Mutual Mobile to the go-to agency for emerging tech that it is today. On this episode of Mission Daily, John discusses how to create a work environment primed for innovation and creativity, how to succeed within the app building world, and his goals for the future of Mutual Mobile. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. John, welcome to the show. Hey, Chad. Really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you on, and I would love it if you could take a moment to tell everyone your name, your title, and where you're calling in from today. Sure, happy to. My name is John Arrow. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Mutual Mobile, calling in from Austin, Texas today. We're in the middle of the, the ACL Fest. Nice. And uh, what's the ACL Fest for those who don't know? It is essentially, uh, it's the epicenter of live music around the world. You have hundreds, if not thousands of bands coming into Austin for back-to-back weekends of music extravaganza. Quite a sight to see. Very cool. So for those who aren't familiar with Austin, or maybe they've been there a handful of times, how would you describe the culture in the city now? And how would you describe the culture when you moved there? Great question. So I'm from Austin, Texas. We've had you know, massive growth over the last uh, 15, 20 years. And uh, I grew up here. So kind of got to see that, 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 that change. And for those who aren't from Austin, you know, one of the ways I kind of like to think about every city is you can sum it up with a question, an energy, right? So as soon as you get off the plane in New York City, for better or worse, there's this energy, this question of how people define each other, something to the effect of what's your worth, what's your net worth. You go to Boston. I can feel the skepticism <laughs> right now. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, right. You go to somewhere like Boston, and as soon as you get off the plane, you're in the airport, you're walking through Cambridge. It's, you know, it's kind of, what do you know? What do you know? What are you learning? Right? You have Harvard and you have MIT and you have BU right next to each other and probably a sure. dozen universities. When you go to LA, it's, it's clear. It's, it's who do you know? San Francisco, I know you're calling, you're, you're, you're from San Francisco. My take on San Francisco is the question, something to the effect of what are you doing to change the world? In Austin, we, it's one of the few places, one of the few great cities in the world where it's difficult to sum up with one question. I will say it's, uh, it's, it's much more ephemeral. People are focused on the here and now. It's a bit hedonistic, which means it's a fascinating and fantastic place to get things done and build a business, high sure. quality of life. I think one of the things that Austin's working on is it's not necessarily the best place to be inspired. So you have to go to kind of the usual suspects to that. Our clock for better or worse ticks half speed compared to somewhere like San Francisco or, uh, or, or Manhattan. And by clock, do you mean the maybe mean average that the average tech executive or business executive works per week or what do you mean there? Absolutely. I mean, uh, very much. I think the number of hours that people work for sure, there's, there's less of an urgency here. There is um, the that feels uh, refreshing, right? Or how would you describe it? I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the Bay Area, and you you alluded to Boston and other metro hubs. Uh, how does it compare there? It's it's something that allows for a greater level of focus, right? There's less sure. yeah. you can kind of immerse yourself in something, and um, 
it's some it's it's easy to get things done it's great to be based here that being said my advice to anyone considering moving to austin or starting a company here in austin texas is make sure to spend a few days a month away from here because it can get almost too comfortable and mm-hmm. uh and, and so you see a lot of uh more lifestyle entrepreneurs here which isn't necessarily a bad thing but um I've seen people fall into the Austin trap where they're, they're, they're content too easy, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I, I would imagine that it's uh, something that is uh, speaking from past experience, pretty mm-hmm. contagious, right? For better or worse, it's uh, great to be in those environments where you're recharging, where you know you need to take a break, but at a certain point, it can be tempting to just stay there. So how, how do you kind of like oscillate between those two places of knowing, okay, this week I'm working 50 hours, but next week, I'm going to work a hundred hours. Do you still feel guilty about that? Do you try to, uh, you know, hit a range of hours worked per week? Um, what's that struggle like? Fascinating question. I've, I've been reinterrogating that recently. Um, my, my knee jerk reaction is that I try not to separate the two. I don't right. drive a line between kind of play and work. Ideally it's this continuum. It's this, there, there shouldn't be kind of this stark contrast between the two. If there is, my suspicion is, you know, I'm doing something wrong. I shouldn't, I shouldn't want to turn off one or the other. One of the things that I kind of force myself to do is to have two or three things going on simultaneously. Mutual mobile is very much my day job. It's where I spend the bulk of my time and it's, you know, the number one priority now. At the same token, though, I try to make sure I, 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 I do some angel investing. I also do some experimentation on my own things that aren't at all directly related, um, you know, to, to, to my main thing, which is mutual mobile. And by doing that, it's not an issue of, am I working or am I playing? It's more of an issue of kind of recharging parts of my brain and using different muscles. Um, as opposed to if I did only one thing, you know, that that's what can lead to burnout. Right. And have you been, uh, employing that strategy for a long time, a couple years or your whole life? It's something that it's, I would say I, I'm, I'm back to doing it. I think I did it very early on when I was first experimenting with online startups. I realized that you needed multiple ones going. Back when we were building Mutual Mobile and we started the company 10 years ago, it was something that demanded my absolute full focus. So I, for a while, abandoned that approach and, and, and only focused on, on Mutual Mobile. Over the last year or so, I realized that there's a value and that there's this cross-pollination to having those multiple uh, endeavors going on in parallel. And so it's, it's something that I'm happy and I've already seen the benefit of returning to uh, that, that you know, natural way of operating. One of my earliest memories is kind of my, my parents or my dad coming home with a computer when I was, I don't know, three or four. And I remember using that computer and just being um, blown away when I learned that a computer can do multiple things at once. And I didn't really have a notion of what a computer was, but that was one of the first ways that it was explained to me. And so ever since then, I feel like I've tried to live up to that, to try to being able to successfully multitask because there are, there are benefits to being able to do that. One of my, one of my you know, passions is flying airplanes where you're forced to multitask. There's no other way to do it. Even if you have the autopilot on, you have to be scanning the instruments or talking to the radio or planning what's ahead. And I, I think you can do things better when you um, kind of spread out your attention be, because it avoids that burnout that we, were, that we were talking about. Yeah. And I feel like, too, when you expand your pursuits into many different areas where, you know, you don't have any experience where people around you are kind of right on the verge of doubting your capabilities or your sanity because you're, you know, engaging in these new pursuits, 
that's where life starts to get exciting, right? Um, are there any hobbies outside of work or anything that's um, maybe a bit uh, uncomfortable to talk about that you can share that you kind of do to either unplug or that you're exploring right now? It's a great question. I've recently started getting more into rock climbing, you know, very much very a cool. physical, but also a mental pursuit. And one of the things that, that I love about rock climbing is that you're, you're self-imposing a challenge. The reason you do it isn't to get to the top. I mean, you're, you're going to come back down. You're doing it because you want to test yourself and uh, you, you want to see what you're capable of. And that seems to transcend every part of the sport. If you go to the rock gym, there's different routes to the top. And choosing the one that is more difficult, more strenuous becomes the more rewarding one. And I view that as something ridiculously analogous to life and, and building companies. A lot of times the easiest route is not the route that, uh, that you want to take. Or if you are making progress on that route, you have to take a step back because you've reached a local maximum or there's no way further up that cliff for that peak. And uh, it's something, again, something pretty nascent right now. It's something I've started doing recently have uh, have, enjoy have enjoyed it immensely. And then, of course, the other thing which I alluded to is is flying airplanes. I find it ridiculously meditative. You're only focused on the task at hand. You, you're literally responsible for the life of yourself and your passengers and getting there in an efficient manner. And it's so different than kind of the typical tasks that an executive must undertake building a company. When you're building a company, you have to think out the side of the box. Really, anything that's written in a Harvard Business School magazine or book is probably the wrong way to go. It's already and priced into the market effectively, yeah. Exactly. And if, yeah, if people would be doing it, everybody would be doing it. Uh, so you have to innovate. You have to get creative. Versus flying an airplane, it's the exact <laughs> right? You want to yeah. do it reckless. You don't want to be innovating here. You want a known, a known input and a known output. And uh, if something goes wrong, there's a prescribed way to deal with it. it so I, again, going back to whole juxtapositions in life, I think that's one of the reasons why I fly flying so deeply gratifying is because it is so deeply regimented. Definitely. And um, so one of my favorite uh, stories, and then I'll reverse the question and ask you, is the story of uh, Shakespeare with Caliban and uh, Prospero. Are you familiar with it? I'm not sure if I'm familiar with that one. There's the slave and the master and the slave chooses the master voluntarily. However, the slave gets resentful and finally, you know, fights to earn um, their freedom, right? And so in business, I find myself continually falling into this trap um, because at the end of Shakespeare's story, the moral is um, the slave is always dissatisfied uh, with the master. And however, you know, when the slave thinks that they've bought their freedom, what they really need is to just find a new master to learn from. And so this is like, I always reflect on the story because I'm so bad at this in, in business where I will, you know, set horrible goals for myself as a taskmaster and sometimes I'll hit them, but they come at this huge personal price, right? So have you ever struggled with something similar? Um, and if this is something you still struggle with, how do you cope with it or uh, any advice? Yeah, what a great uh, story. I mean, it's it's something that's insidious too, right? We we go out, we create a business, a company, and then before we know it, we're trapped in it like it was another job. And you, you, I've certainly seen this happen a lot of times. I think I have something in my immune system now that, that <laughs> you're cautious of that scenario. But it, again, it's this insidious thing. It happens. It happens so frequently. And part of it is that we grew up in that, that kind of, with that kind of frame in mind, right? That we have to trade our, our time for money. And uh, it, 
in back maybe in our in our parents generation that was the way that it was and certainly their parents that was um you were lucky if, if you were trading your time for money and it's so difficult to undo that programming we still have k through 12 and and universities around the world perpetuating this this pretty sad um, state of affairs that in order to be happy in order to be successful you have to define it by how much you traded an hour for when in reality that's almost always a a bad trade i know that that uh when, when i think about working now i don't even try to put a dollar figure on it i i just if i if i could put a dollar figure on working that hour i know i'm probably doing something incorrectly instead i try to think of it more in the sense of if i work this one hour it will save me 10,000 hours or it will be equivalent to having worked, I don't know, several orders of magnitude more than that amount of time. But yeah, you fall back into it, especially when the, the day-to-day grind hits you, right? It's, it's easy to want to fill up our day with different things and, and feel as if we're working when reality, we're not accomplishing the results. I love what, I love what Tim Ferriss has said uh, and the way that he kind of avoids that trap. He basically says, if you look at a to-do list, you have hundreds of things that you should do every day. What are the several things where you you do one of those and the rest of them get knocked over like dominoes or you do that one or one or two things and the rest of them don't matter. And this is something I've, I first heard him say it on, on a podcast. Uh, every time I've, I've met him in person, he's also reminded me of that. So I noticed something that is very kind of near and dear to his heart. And it's something that I've tried to steal and, um, you know, think about every day. So I don't know if that, that answers your question, but it's, it's something that I think we're all constantly battling with. Yeah, that's fascinating. And uh, so I have a whole bunch of follow-up questions. And if you're uh, willing to share, great. If you don't want to, feel free to pass on any of them. Um, so did you go to public school or private school in K-12? through I went uh, entirely public school. And then K-12 through here in Austin, lived in Seattle for a while, and then went to the University of Texas. Very cool. And uh, so I'm curious, in K-12, through uh, were there any formative experiences or any moments that uh, maybe were defining for you or that, you know, you hold near and dear and reflect on from time to time? I, I, you know, Chad, I'm so grateful that I got the chance to go to a public school. I think if I had gone to a private school, I might have, um, you know, come to different conclusions about the world and went on a different path. In K through 12, very early on in kindergarten, even, I don't know if I recall this memory happening or I just fictionalized it in my mind. It's what are you going to do when you grow up? That, that seems to be what, the entire years are about preparing you for that job here in Austin. <laughs> Dell's a big employer, so for a lot of my a lot of my time in an Austin public school district, it felt like how can we be molded and created to be valuable for Dell? Same thing when you went to wow. the University of Texas. How can you, you know, be valuable to a certain employer? Uh, even even while I was at UT, they actively discouraged people in the business school or in the computer science school leaving and starting a company. They actively discourage that. And the reason why is it would hurt them in the rankings. Some, I guess, ranking of what happens to their graduates. And so now when I experienced that, it had the opposite effect. I mean, I knew unequivocally I did not want to be in a scenario where I was forced to trade the best years of, of my life um, and give them to somebody else. I, I reacted just repulsively around that concept. And perhaps because of the situation of K through 12, that's when I started first creating businesses and realizing I didn't want to work for, for anyone but myself. And I think one of the reasons why I've resisted having a boss, I've, I've never had a boss and uh, I, I don't ever plan to, I think I'd be an awful employee too. <laughs> um, but uh, if it was not for that, that K through 12 experience, I might've been at least willing to entertain or more receptive uh, to the possibility. 
Yeah, definitely. And I feel like uh, K through 12 is interesting because in my experience, it was uh, almost like it was a job I was forced into that I didn't want to do. But in learning how to do the job and just show up every day, you kind of like, you were able to build the entrepreneurial muscle, right? Because it, for certain things, you know, you just notice how this employer is visiting or how if I get on this track now that begins in eighth grade, the result is, you know, you're going to go to the University of Maryland, you're going to study this, and then you're going to work for this company. So it was um, sometimes, you know, it was apparent when that track was being laid out in front of you. And then other times, you know, as an entrepreneur, I would get on a track and then I, I really wouldn't be aware of where it was going and it would be, you know, kind of a bit terrifying. And I'm from a small town, so there weren't a lot of other, I would say, entrepreneurs to rely on, right? So in your early days in school where you were selling CDs or making money or however you got started, I'm curious, any uh, stories there you can share and any um, cultural hurdles that you had to jump over in order to, you know, make money and uh, sell things? I like that. This is the way that you frame that you kind of put onto these trajectories and these tracks uh, and, and aren't even necessarily aware of it. The, the first one that comes to mind where I maybe rebelled against that a bit goes, uh, has its roots in fifth grade. There was, I was, I had moved from Austin for my dad's job. My dad uh, worked for Microsoft growing up. So we moved to Seattle, went to fifth grade there and um, a new kid at a new school, you trying to make a name for yourself. Right. And uh, there was this newspaper. It was a, it was a publication that was put out every week and, given that it was the only piece of media, every, every student in the school would read it. And uh, I decided, well, hey, I'm going to create a competing newspaper. But uh, I said, I'm going to put this newspaper together. I had one of those extremely old printers. Uh, I guess at the time it wasn't old, but then it, it took five, basically five minutes to print a page in black and white. And I, I just ran it for, I don't know, five hours that night, putting paper back in. Before I knew it, I had uh, maybe, maybe 60 copies of this thing. And I don't recall exactly what all the stories were, um, but the one that really had the meat, the one that, that, that people were interested in, was <clears throat> who liked who. And if you go back to fifth grade, that's information's highly classified. So that is there. the killer app in any type of uh, <laughs> environment where there's homo sapiens sapiens. <laughs> exactly. And, and, yeah. and given, that, given that this information, I had the exclusive on it because, hey, I, I kind of <laughs> took my best guess at it. I decided I could sell each copy for a dollar or five oh, wow. coupons. So one of the That's two, either currency, I guess it was the early uh, predecessor to crypto. So went to school and um, enlisted some of my, my new friends it was beginning of the school year to kind of help out with this endeavor. Before we knew it, they were all gone. Um, I don't know if we had sold every single one, but they were all in circulation one way or another. And it caused an absolute uproar. Like none, none other people were were like, who wrote this? Where'd you get your information? And before I knew it, end of school day, called into the principal's office, along with the people who helped me distribute it. And um, principal, basically, he did not have a good-natured view on this. He didn't respect that it was this entrepreneurial experiment. He, he was, um, you know, basically, look, you're, you're going to get suspended unless you give everybody their money back you know, and the respect response. <laughs> Plus, you need to write apology letters to every person named in your newspaper. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, and so it was, what was fascinating about it is my, my, my friends that helped with it, I, I think a lot of they, – they got in trouble. Their parents found out about it, and I think our principal you know, called their parents or whatever, and they got grounded or something. 
my parents were completely good natured about it. They, they, they saw the humor in it. They applauded that. And, and just, again, the juxtaposition that the school was adamantly opposed to this, but I had this other influence, which my family, which was deeply supportive of it, shaped kind of my thinking about um, where I wanted to spend my focus and who I wanted to, you know, who I respected in the world. And that caused me to double down on, on greater pursuits. But uh, that, that's certainly one that has stayed with me. And I think I've, I've uh, encountered it again in various forms throughout, throughout most of my education. Yeah, definitely. And I'm curious, when you were talking to other students and, you know, anytime you get in trouble in life, I don't care how old you are, you always find out who your true friends are, right? Um, because there's your side of the story, there's other people's side, and your true friends are the ones that are going to, uh, you know, maybe be patient with you during that process of getting in trouble, stand by your side, all those good things. Did you kind of like find out who your true friends were in that moment? Or have there been moments like that in your career where, uh, you know, something bad happens and you kind of figure out who's on your side and who isn't? That's one of the things I love about starting a company, right? You have people that are literally in the same, you know, same vehicle, same entity as you, all striving for a, a common purpose. And throughout Mutual Mobile's history, um, we were a bootstrap company that grew immensely quickly and reached 300 people basically by year three. And wow. there, were, there were a lot of individuals that made that possible. One of, one of my co-founders, Tarun and I, we dedicated basically our entire waking hours during the first three years to the company. And um, what, what I think is fascinating about it is you kind of realize that um, you become really close. And when you, when you hit those trials and tribulations, it would be, it would have been easy for either one of us to kind of you know, turn our back on it or kind of pursue a different goal. But there, that was never a question that never came up. And so um, I, I value those, those moments of tribulation as much as I do the successes. And I think that's what forges friendships. And one of the reasons why there's a lot of merit from my perspective in, in, in creating a company uh, with friends, you know, you really need to know somebody pretty well before you embark on a journey like that. And yeah. uh, if you're doing that with strangers or you're doing that with people who kind of fit the role from a resume standpoint or because an investor referred them to you, that may work. Chances are though, you're going to go through scenarios where unless there's a solid foundation, uh, it's not going to hold up. And that's partly the reason why you see so many messy situations with cap tables and, and uh, businesses falling apart because people never got the, the opportunity to know who their co-founder or who their early partners truly were. Yeah, that's uh, such good advice. And so I'm curious to know as well, uh, when you're building that partnership with Tarun, and obviously this is something that's uh, evolving, right? Like it's it's not the same because both of you are, you're on unique journeys, you're both building, you're doing pursuits, all the pursuits that you just mentioned. How do you balance, um, you know, staying on the same page with your partner versus maybe falling into like a codependent relationship? Uh, I think for co-founders, it can be very tempting to maybe rely too heavily on one another. How do you kind of get that balance right or, you know, make sure the partnership is, uh, is healthy and you're not accruing like relationship debt? with your co-founders. Yeah, that's, that's something that was certainly, you know, we discovered really early on that unless we had the same, we measured success in the same way, we would not be able to operate, um, you know, on the same page. I think that's, that's deeply paramount that, you know, in our case, we wanted to build an, uh, a large company, wanted to build a valuable company, and we were going to measure success kind of from a valuation standpoint. 
And that isn't the proxy for every, every startup. In fact, um, we've had early employees along the way who cared more about a general work-life balance as opposed to building something immensely valuable and significant. And so I think if, if that manifests in a, in a way that's different with your co-founder, it's bound to cause, you know, problems. And um, that, that's why I like trying to choose something that is pretty tangible um, rather than some type of superlative. You can kind of bake it into a revenue figure or a stock price figure or, um, you know, something else. It becomes really clear to define, are we on the right path or are we not? Where, where I've run into challenge personally before is when it is a bit more nebulous and it's some goal that is about, um, great example is we do a ton with emerging technologies. So to the extent we're making investments in, I don't know, voice, voice UI, well, how do we know if we've been successful in voice UI? Is it that we had some big breakthrough and that we got a lot of media written about it? Or should we only value it based on new engagements and revenue? And so I think defining what success is is the only way to avoid running into a, a trap where you, um, you know, you don't know if you and your partner are kind of on the, on the right course together. Sure. And um, when it comes to defining success, uh, is this something you think about? I mean, obviously you're thinking about it quarterly, maybe for better or worse. Do you try to think about it in terms of like each day, each year, are you just uh, switching between, you know, all these different time horizons? Uh, how do you think about that? Here is something that I've, yeah, I'm glad you asked that question. It's something that I, I try to remind myself of uh, daily now. From my perspective, I, I've, I, used to, I used to feel, maybe this was part of the, the just the cargo cult mentality within, within startups, that there used to be kind of a martyr period, right? Where you have to, you have to persist and you'd have to kind of invest deeply and, and hustle. I hate that word, but hustle for a long time. And then after many months or many years, you would start to see the results of it. And that's certainly a path and it can work. My new philosophy is to try to win at every single stage. So every day there should be wins. Every week there should be wins. Every month there should be wins. And perhaps they become logarithmic as time go, goes by. But if you feel like you're not seeing a return on time and capital um, in any given time frame, in even a quarter, maybe, maybe too long, something, something is not right. And getting rid of that, mar that martyr philosophy has been immensely helpful. It's, it's enabled the path, I think, to building something great to look more like stepping stones as opposed to jumping over some type of crevasse. I don't always adhere to it, but as, as often as I can try to remind myself of it, it, it seems to be helpful. Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty profound. And I'm thinking, you know, you said martyr philosophy. I think that's very fascinating because environments where resources are scarce it's tempting to develop that type of martyr-based culture because it's, it's a very viable path when you're in kind of like wartime mode or your back is against the wall. Um, maybe you haven't got paid by uh, your largest client and maybe it's like getting to a place where you're six months past due on bills or something like that um, and you have all these accounts receivable. So just imagine some like hypothetical scenarios like that. How, how do you encounter those and when you do, how do you keep the mindset and the perspective of calm when it's um, you need to be in a wartime mode, right? As much as possible, try to avoid that, that wartime scenario being necessary. Obviously we can't always, but that, that should be the goal. I'm super fortunate to get to work with um, Garrett Camp, who was the, the, the original CEO of Uber before Travis took the reins. He was Travis and, and Garrett. And we worked with Garrett on um, stumble upon iPad app really early on before he oh, had awesome. formulated uh, Uber. I remember hearing about this idea from him 
and it was it was still in its infancy. And the way he went about Uber was just was just fascinating to me because he avoided a wartime scenario, at least until way later on, I guess, in the company's history now. And the way he did that is he he didn't overinvest in technology. He said, look, we're gonna under-engineer this thing. The sure. way that Uber yeah. started, arguably the most valuable app company in the history of the world, still today, if you look at their stock price, they're one of the most valuable apps out there. They started with almost no tech. It was simply SMS text message. You would say to a number, pick me up at this location. You would share your Google map location and a car would come. And then there was somebody in the back office who would manually call a driver and say, go to this place, pick this person up. And they did this for six months before they wrote any code. Uh, Yeah, and uh, I mean, anonymous people on Hacker News would just accuse them of uh, just vaporware, garbage, Uh, anybody could have done it. (laughs) Sorry, just had to insert that. I love that. Yeah, it's funny. They they, surely took a ton of flack for it at that time, but it kept them out of a scenario where they had built something that was, um, one, just super expensive, and they were having to figure out how to finance it um, out of their pockets really early on. And two, it allowed them to build exactly what they needed to build and nothing more. And so one of the kind of going back to your question, how do I, how, you know, what do I do in a wartime scenario? I, I like to avoid it by going extremely light on, on, on building tech early on. And even our, even our customers. That's such good advice. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we have, you know, we have customers that regularly want to come in fortune 1000 companies and, and, and dedicate a ton to digital transformation or building these IOT products. And we tell them to slow down, let's figure out a way to do this without any tech initially. And then once we're sure when, paths are right, we'll go in and we'll build, we'll, we'll build what we need to build. Similar to how Microsoft designed their walkways at the early campus in Redmond, they didn't put any concrete down. They just made this great, perfectly mowed grass field and they let people walk across so the, the grass. Pathways emerge, yeah. Yeah, and uh, then they knew what paths to make. And, and so that's something that, to the much you, as you can do that, you avoid such scenarios where uh, you have to really hunker down and figure out uh, how are we gonna get out of this situation. That being yeah. said, once you're in the situation, I think sometimes the cleanest thing to do is to, to pause the technology and stop everything and, and kind of, you know, look at it from a look at, rather than trying to brownfield something, start with a blank canvas again. That's uh yeah, that's great advice. So, I mean, obviously this is something I'm personally struggling with right now. And, you know, as a CEO, just for context, so I founded mission back in, let's see, March 22nd of 2017 as a uh, solo non-technical founder. Uh, I got an angel check from founders fund. And then later on, I got an angel check from Sequoia Scouts, um, recruited a team, and uh, everything's going really well. Hit profitability the first year. Um, we're growing fast, approaching our three-year anniversary. Um, everything's really exciting. However, there's just this huge amount of pressure to build a technology product, right? So obviously, we're building an app. We're building a streaming platform for all of our media and shows. However, I think... Um, the pressure from, I would say, like the venture capital community, the finance market, and established incumbents to have a technology platform is immense for every company right now. However, I think you alluded to the fact that it's really a non-issue if you have a business where, uh, you know, there are systems in place that are going to operate in a down market, um, where you have a recession-proof business, or where, you know, if you're like leading the industry and revenue per employee or some metric like that, those are all signs that like you're on the right track and maybe you should just ignore the advice to take a bunch of money to invest in a technology play or something like that. So I've kind of like set the stage there. What's your psychological analysis on that situation and 
how do you avoid getting like lured down the path of take all of this other person's money and create a technology company when you already have something that's working great? First of all, congratulations on those two investors. I mean, it does not get any, um, you know, that's the, that's the best of the best in the investor community, both those groups. Um, Thanks. They, yeah, they have been uh, incredible. They, are, they, they get it. They, they, they are true operators. And so I think you already set it up just ridiculously well because you, you have other entrepreneurs who are investing, whereas most of the VCs that are out there, they have, uh, you know, one or two EIRs, but certainly not the whole staff. The whole staff there basically has done their own company. So I think that's, that's hugely gratifying. And, and so in that situation, probably what's good for the company, what's good for the investors and what's good for customers and everybody else, they're all the same. What can be difficult, I think, with, with, with the non-household name investors that don't have that entrepreneurial background is early on, it's a straddle. And if you're trying to please customers and trying to please investors, there should be the same path, but more often not, than not, they diverge. And um, we were faced with that scenario early on as a company. We, we think of ourselves as a company that brings emerging technology to Fortune 1000 and help them change their business. Early on, we were you know, very much classified as a services business, and we were receiving a lot of interest from investors. And as a services company, it didn't really make sense for us to go out and, and spend other people's money. It seemed like a divergent path to helping our customers. Because if we were doing our jobs right, our investors should be our customers. And instead of getting equity, they get something that changes their own business. And so we stayed true to that mindset and still to this day have not uh, taken a dollar of investment into the company. We've done transactions where the founders have got liquidity, but we've avoided situations where we were trying to um, kind of please customers and please investors at the same, pa- at the same time, just because we, we became cognizant of some, some dissonance that could occur there. With our own company, with our own customers who are venture back, we, we do see that pressure. I and mean, the way that we try to mitigate it is by doing these very kind of low fidelity proof of concepts. What's the minimum viable product that we can get out there and get feedback rather than spending their, I don't know, their $8 million A round on um, something that they don't really need. So something we're cognizant of, our backgrounds, our first customers were all in the health tech space. So we learned about the Hippocratic Oath, the first do no harm. And it's something we've tried to adopt continuously, but it can be, um, it can be a real problem as much as a asset when, when, when a company has a, you know, big checks to write, because sometimes they'll be likely to, to use that like a hammer where everything's a nail and, and build the wrong thing. And at that point, um, they kind of box themselves into what can be an impossible situation. Definitely. And so in your uh, journey, when you were starting out and in the first years of uh, your company, which I think you said is a decade old now, just turned 10. Congratulations. That's uh, very impressive. So in the early days, in the early years, what was the first uh, large enterprise client that you closed or that reached out to you? What, what were um, those days like or those moments like where you knew, okay, this is going to work at a large scale? Right. I like to say a lot of it was um, you know, foresight on our part, but a ton of it came down to, to luck and being at the right place at the right time. 2007, Steve Jobs announced the iPhone. 2008, it shipped. 2009, the App Store went live. We started the the company in 2009, back when there were less than 50 apps um, in the store. One of our first tangible, notable customers was a health tech company called Greenway Medical uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia. And they said, look, we want to figure out how to reduce medical errors in the ER and the OR using the iPhone. 
a lot of these problems are getting created because doctors have messy handwriting. Something gets lost in translation between the nurse and the EMR and a patient ends up getting 10 times more dosage of a medicine than they should or the wrong medication. It kills them. In fact, eight times more people were dying in 2009 due to medical errors and car accidents, at least in the United States, which was crazy. And so the moment we were able to kind of create that solution with them, we knew nothing about health tech at the time, but we did know about, um, we did know about mobile. We were able to ship that solution and medical errors started going down. Our customer had this new revenue channel and ended up going public. Uh, and it was the story that was just a huge proof point for us. And we were able to use that as a stepping stone to working with working on even grander problems with bigger companies. Early on, we got the opportunity to work with Google on, on some of their shopping and then their, their mobile wallet platform. There's that fantastic Arthur C. Clarke quote that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that's kind of how I think our customers saw us and as somewhat of magicians. We would, we would add on this way to purchase from your phone or to use um, wayfinding in a new way. And all of a sudden it would change their business and they were, they would, there was, there was, was something that, that, that took very little investment, but produced these huge returns for them. And I think once we started unlocking that for, for, for a few names, word spread and the rest of it kind of was a, uh, was momentum. And if we were, if we were a few months earlier or a few months later, it probably wouldn't have worked as a business. It would have been, uh, it, it, the timing wouldn't have been right. Yeah. I, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And, um, what I took away from that, that I think is important is, when you are able to achieve those wins with something that uh, other investors or other people would um, refer to as services-based technology, that's a really, really big proof of concept because if you can do it for one enterprise and they're really happy or you know, they want to do an annual contract or they're willing to sign your MSA agreement or whatever the case is, you know you're onto something really big. And if you get one, you can get more. You can get two, you can get 10, you can get a hundred. So what was that journey like for you? And how did you develop a mindset that uh, said, okay, if we can figure out how to deliver magic for these 10 fortune 50 or fortune 100 companies, I know that eventually we can serve like the entire global 2000. What's that thought process like? And um, what's your mindset like there? Yeah. So uh, great question, Chad. It's, it's definitely evolved. When we started, it was as if we were getting off the Santa Maria on a new world that had <laughs> basically not been uh, explored or there except for the indigenous people there. And so any area where we sunk our teeth into, we found hundreds of willing customers uh, with a bit of a track record. We were able to grow as fast as we could find engineers. That was what was bottlenecking the business. So we were not, we were not demand constrained at all. Over time is, is what happens with any kind of new technology or new age, right? You, you have massive fragmentation, and then you have the inevitable consolidation and, and commoditization. So, to, so today when I look at it, the landscape, the businesses that come to us, that work with us, they, they all have that ROI in mind, that specific KPI. I'm sure, you know, your day is filled with th looking at these too, right? If, if, we put, if we put $5 into something, how do we make sure... 50 comes out, or at least, at least, you know, we, we don't, we don't lose that $5. And so most of kind of the customers that we really enjoy working with are the non-technology ones, the ones where they are extremely successful businesses that have not yet embraced digital or emerging technologies in a new way. And we can kind of come in and, and, and do something that literally overnight means that they're, you know, doubling or tripling sales or saving um, substantial costs on, on the supply side. So, 
that's what we look at today, but it was, it was just to go back to the early days. It was a grand time where, you know, that perspective, it felt like a kind of a once in a lifetime opportunity, which I'm sure is not the case. I'm sure you have these opportunities happening every, every few years, but at the time it was like, wow, we are the best position to go after and capture as much market share as, uh, as possible. And that was part of my selfish reason for wanting to start mutual mobile was just to kind of get the best seat to watch and be familiar with these, literally thousands of different companies that were starting at the same time as us and, and getting to kind of see and, and learn. Um, that would, that, that's what I benefited the most out of mutual mobile is that just that journey of learning over the last 10 years. Yeah. And I think that following that thread of excitement or uh, exploration or whatever is um, never in my experience, it's never something that's as risky as you imagine in the beginning uh, because you get started and then, uh, especially with enterprise clients, it's always amazing when you start to work with the Fortune 500 or Global 2000, you know, whatever you want to call it, what you usually discover, and in my experience that we've started to discover, is that the folks that work there are enormously competent, they're really skilled, and they're going to make you better, and they're going to make your team better. However, with each company, you have to take the time to learn the culture and it's, it's almost like you have to invest a certain amount of time learning that enterprise's uh, language. So is this something you do? Did you used to do it? And how, how do you think about this as you're building those uh, customer relationships or partnerships? I think, I think you're exactly right. It's very unrisky, right? The risky thing would be, there's this philosophy, at, and you've probably seen as much as I have, that people believe when you start a company, when you, when you, when you go and found a startup that it's this immensely risky thing, but the upside is so disproportionately higher. If you just looked at it from an expected value standpoint, um, it's not really that risky. Worst case scenario, the company fails and you could go get a job working at, you know, McKenzie or wherever, you know, tons of employers would, would, would be happy to happy to have us. Right. But uh, it, there, so the upside though is so disproportionately large. So, Starting a company specifically in the enterprise space is, is, is even less risky because you have these willing buyers that look at it and they kind of can see that ROI from just almost from day one. I'm reminded of uh, some of, the, some of the, the work that we've been doing with this company called Agco. They basically make these tractors just like John Deere, except these are the tractors that cost two or three million a piece. They wanted to figure out a way to kind of bring IoT and telemetry in, and, and, and they knew nothing about technology. And so we said, yeah, we can definitely build that. We can make you kind of these higher tech tractors. But rather than going about and just making it um, look sleeker, we said, what if you could give customers the ability to buy additional horsepower? The engines were already throttled across um, different types of machinery. So they said, look, if we just make this thousand horsepower tractor, could we give customers who want a tractor at a lower price a 500 horsepower version? And then if they need to buy that additional horsepower, we can software unlock it. And that was this whole radical change to this business model where you could finally, you know, literally buy uh, extra power um, by the hour. And so when you go into the enterprise, like you said, it, it's not that risky because you, you know the results before you start it. I think consumer can be a bit trickier because you're trying to anticipate demand and, and there's so many other personalities, but enterprise itself, I view as somebody starting an enterprise company is one of the least risky things they could do. I think it'd be way more riskier to go work for an enterprise company than uh, I, services to them. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, and I think the two examples you mentioned before, I think it's interesting how your mind works because you mentioned before that, you know, your work with the enterprise, the first large one that you worked with 
led to a reduction in the amount of medical errors. And now working with an enterprise, uh, really a robotics company, right? Because when you're talking about a tractor that costs between two to $3 million, you're talking about a sophisticated piece of um, robotics technology. And so when you're working with companies like that, I think on the surface, sometimes it can feel like, oh, this is um, an unsexy industry. This is boring. But it seems like you tend to kind of create metrics or challenges or maybe just learn enough about the space to kind of make it exciting, right? So how do you go about taking what seems like, okay, this is just another client project and turning it into something that you're fired up about, that your team's fired up about, and that maybe, you know, you create a North Star for where you have that metric of, okay, we're reducing medical errors every single day. So I know that, you know, when you're proofreading copy for the seventh time, it feels like (laughs) that sucks, but it could help save somebody's life today. Maybe you know that person. So that's a long-winded question, but how do you think about that? When I found out I was going to get to talk to you, Chai, when and listen to some of your podcasts, one of the things that just kind of hit me is there's so much value. You do, you, you do this once, you and, you and the guests, and then thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people can listen to this for years oh, and years to come. Yeah. And, uh, and, and you only kind of expended that one hour. You got this just huge leveraged effect that have benefited so many people. And so it's kind of the same thing where when we are getting to work with a customer, yeah, we care immensely about their, their, their ROI and, and, and their interest, but more, or maybe I should say equally importantly, we care about the end user, the person who's going to be using this um, utility day in and day out, right? And, and, and spending, if, if it's used by tens of thousands of people, or in the case of Under Armour, some of the stuff we've used is, is used by over 100 million people a month, that adds up to people's years, life years, every man years, every, uh, every few weeks. Right. And so like, wow, that's a big responsibility. If you, if, if we design this in a less than optimum scenario, we're causing all of this, um, you know, this frustration. And so we tried to think about that end user first and give them, we, it, it's a, you know, a bit, a bit cliche, but we, we actually have, I'm staring at it right now in, in our conference room. We put an empty chair, a blue chair in every single office, remains empty so that our user has a seat at the table, the end user, not just the customer, the end user. And so we try to think about it from their perspective and how to make their lives a little better. And we can all relate to it, right? There's been scenarios where we're at an ATM or we're at a gas station pump or whatever it is. And it's a less than optimum experience and it just weighs on you. And you say, I know I could make that better. Well, for our people, for our engineers our designers our project managers, that's that opportunity to make life a little bit better. And it's not always about saving lives. It's not always about saving money. Sometimes it could just be about helping an individual employee, whoever, get through their day uh, a little bit easier. And that, that's gratifying to the right type of, right type of people that, that we look to hire. I love that. So when you're thinking about hiring, recruiting, or uh, attracting great talent, I'm curious to know, do you start in the Austin community when you're balancing or creating your recruiting schedule? What's that distribution look like and how are you breaking down your time there? Yeah, I mean, that's, it's not a chicken and egg conundrum, right? We, people want to work with us because we have rock star people. These are the people that, they're the types of people that want to get a spectrum of, of initiatives and they would get bored probably working at a Facebook or a Google day in and day out. And as a result, creating that climate and that atmosphere that um, they're willing to relocate their families across the United States to come to Austin is, is paramount. And if we do that right, which I think we've done a relatively good job 
everything else falls into place. But we're not limiting our sites just to Austin. We have an extremely large office in, in Hyderabad, India. We recognize that um, great talent is all around the world and it gives us new perspective. So one of our strategies that we are embarking upon um, through the end of this year and, and well into 2020 is to, to create a third office, a third kind of hub for us. We're evaluating cities right now, but we, we, we don't, we don't want to have, you know, just one large office in Hyderabad or Austin. We want to make it a, a priority because there's these other fringe benefits to, to having people in other cities. So I'll let you know how that goes. My suspicion is that um, there'll be a lot of learning, but once we get it right, it will be a, you know, kind of a, a good mode and, um, it will it'll be make it make for a more interesting company. Very cool. So um, one of the podcasts we created was called Future of Cities, and mm-hmm. we only did season one, but the season was a collection of interviews with maybe forty different people in the industry of let's just call it yeah future of cities there. Cool. <laughs> and uh, so these were basically experts that are building and planning and working with like uh, Google Area One Twenty, I think is the project name yeah. for it and a whole bunch of other like secretive projects to create the future of cities. So as you're thinking about where you're going to base the company, the next headquarters, what cities are you thinking about? And um, are there any uh, radical ideas you're pursuing or discussing with the team? Black Rock City, Burning Man. That's, that's <laughs> a joke. Uh, have you been before? Have you been to Burning Man? Uh, no, so I haven't been to Burning Man. However, um, so we've only lived in the Bay Area for three years and this was the first year that I had a couple of friends come back and they came uh, straight to me uh-huh. and uh, told me that I didn't have a choice. They were going to uh, kidnap me. That was their, <laughs> their description of it. Um, so maybe I'll go next year. I hope you, I hope you do. It's, it's, it's definitely worth <laughs> checking out. Um, probably yeah. not the most effective place for a company, but the, you know, the reason, the reason I, I did say that, not completely tongue in cheek, right? I mean, one of the great things about Burning Man is, is that, just like any other great city in the world, except there, it only exists for a week out of the year. So it creates this curation and this, um, this urgency that you wouldn't see otherwise. Um, it, it, you see the abundance, but you also see the scarcity. So for us, I skipped this year. Oh no. Yeah. I skipped this year. I've been three years before and, um, uh, I recommend checking it out. It was something that I didn't, didn't know if I would like or not, but I'm, I'm glad I, I participated in it. You know, if you like travel, I think you'd like Burning Man. When I think about other cities for us, as potential homes, it's going to be the cities that, that don't necessarily immediately come to mind. Um, you know, it's unlikely that it would make sense for Mutual Mobile to have a sizable office in San Francisco. We actually did briefly for a while or in New York or, or the usual suspects because there's just so many options there and kind of, it would be fighting for talent and, and there's, there, it just, it just wouldn't be right for us. So I think where we could be the most effective and the most leveraged are the smaller cities. Um, I just went to Bentonville, Arkansas, early this summer and I've fallen in love with the city. I've been back several times, really unlikely place. It's similar to a, um, I'd say almost like a, an Austin 30 years ago where mm-hmm. you kind of have all of the, it's very easy to do business there. And so I like the tier two, the tier three cities that are emerging and their best days are very clearly ahead of them. Um, so that's what we're looking at. And it's not confined just to the United States. We're looking in South America, we're looking at Canada, we're looking at Europe but they're going to be the places that um, most people wouldn't necessarily jump at as a, you know, as a travel honeymoon destination. Very cool. So the next question, I have to nerd out a little bit more. Sure. Um, so I have a couple of friends that are uh, head of facilities at a couple of large tech companies. And so they're basically 
their job consists of doing this process all day long, every day, and just evaluating, you know, tier two, tier three uh, cities and trying to figure out what signals are going to, you know, indicate that this is going to be the next Austin, right? So this is, yeah, this is a really interesting subject for me. And I'm curious, obviously everyone has their own proprietary signals in business and their own trade secrets of how they analyze uh, real estate deals and stuff like that. But I'm curious, is there anything you can share about, you know, are you looking for a tier two or tier three city that has, you know, like Adele in it? Are you looking to become Adele in that city and then IPO there? What's that thought process like and anything you can share? Yeah, um, it's, a, it's a good question. I don't know if I've thought about it through that lens specifically. I'd say one of the things that we're looking for is uh, a, a university that is more about the students than the research. Like when you, huh. when you okay. have, when you have a good solid basis, I dropped out of college. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm, I'm not even the top 10 of the smartest people at this company. We have, we have amazing engineers and designers, but they've all kind of gone through conventional or unconventional formal training routes. We need, we need people to have done that. And so being close to a university is immensely important. Halifax, Nova Scotia, fascinating place. I was just, just there a couple of weeks ago. Um, didn't, wasn't there for a business purpose, but I kind of thought, wow, this is a university that has some interesting programs. I don't think it's, you know, over, doesn't have too much clout in terms of, uh, you know, just being famous for fit to be famous. So somewhere like that could be interesting. I think another prerequisite is it needs to be the type of environment that um, values outdoors and open spaces. I don't know if that's a heuristic in my mind or a personal bias, but I, I find that it's easier to do business there. People are happier as opposed to kind of a dense urban environment. I think that's one of the things that's worked so well for San Francisco is you have the outdoors right there. You Northern California, Southern California, and you, you could literally in a, an hour or two be um, in the wilderness. There's something just so gratifying for that. And if I'm going to be visiting this place, <laughs> it's important for me to have. Yeah. And that's, that brings up an interesting point. So one of the uh, cultural values we're, we're kind of working on, and we're still trying to figure out the language is trying to get each individual to adopt their own version of um, Plato's heuristic for pursuing the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, nice. Because sometimes it's, it's hard, right? Where you're trying to either be an executive or become an executive at the business you're working with or become more entrepreneurial, however you want to define it. And it's hard to know kind of like, what is the North Star you should be working on that day, that week, that month? So how, how do you go about training your team members with cultural values or heuristics so they can act autonomously and you, know, you and the other executives don't have to micromanage as much? You know, as you're asking that kind of the, the light bulb that went off in my head kind of question that I, I wanted to ask is, was there, was there a catalyst for that? Or is that something that you've always done? Cause uh, you know, it seems it's, it, it's just such a clarifying way to look at it. That's something. Oh, that you, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, just something basically always done. That's, that's awesome. Um, it, it's something that I, I think I, I wish we had done that from a really early stage and the mistake that we made was probably not going through Plato's exercise and instead <laughs> having everybody telling them and mandating that this is, the, this is the light on the shining hill. This is the North star. When in reality, individuals need to go through that exercise for themselves. And it, it can almost be confusing 
for many, many employees to, to put your notion of that in everybody's head. Obviously at a macro level, it's great to have a vision and a goal, but um, there's so many individual pursuits, letting, letting contributors go through that and determine what's important to them personally is, is such a critical exercise. And so that's something we've started to do with our own team is, is yes, here's the company's goals. Here's our mission. We care deeply about this. What do you as an individual contributors trading some of your, you know, waking hours every day, day in and day out. Right. What do you want to get out of this? What's important to you? And the more we started to ask that, the, the kind of the better results we've gotten towards that mission and that, that, that light on the shining hill. So, or the North yeah. Star, you call yeah. it. And uh, I think it's, it's a challenge because um, for, for CEOs or for co-founders and the founding team, uh, this is something that, you know, some, you can set the culture and you can do your best to build it. However, the CEO and the founding team, they're not going to be perfect. And with early team members and when the teams, I would say like between 10 to 20 people, it's a, uh, it's a difficult challenge where you want everyone to know that, you know, you know what the best business path is that the company has runway. However, they're going to need to help out to create the culture. And it's not something where, you know, the execs don't know what they're doing. It's something where, the execs have been through the trauma of, you know, working in companies where they weren't uh, a participant in building that culture, right. Or where they were, they had their opinions belittled or, you know, typically most startups are a band of like uh, alienated or exiled execs from other companies. So how do you go about bringing your team in on the, maybe like the conspiracy or, you know, your grand vision without making it, yeah. You know, all without making it coercive, right? How do you make it more voluntary? And it's, it's a motley crew of people. I like that you said, yeah, you get, you get the exiled executives in there because they, <laughs> they all come with their own notion, right? Of, of what's worked. And um, it probably did at the organization. And unfortunately there's a temptation for us all to kind of fall back on the last thing that we did bias towards things that we've done previously. And so I don't know if this is a systemic way to solve the problem, However, it's, it's a great band-aid I found, and that is to uh, get everybody externally focused, right? To the extent that, that we can be out talking with customers, working on high stakes, exciting initiatives for world-changing companies, everything else seems to kind of fall into place. The times where we've gotten into trouble is when we, we embark on too much of a, of a vision quest, too much of an existential you know, navel gazing hunt. That's, that's, that's when um, we start talking too internally and we get focused on that. It's like kind of, you know, maybe that's like a snake eating its, its uh, tail. So we try to, we try to make sure that the conversations that we're, that we're having, we're spending most of our mental energies on helping organizations solve our problems rather than trying to, you know, squeeze every last ounce of efficiency out of, you know, our own internal operations. Again, there's probably a better way to solve it, but that, uh, <laughs> that Band-Aid seems to work well for us. Yeah, and uh, so earlier you alluded to, you know, keeping that extra chair in uh, customer meetings or just, uh, you know, always around at different places on your campus to signify, okay, we're, our, we're always going to be customer-centric, customer-focused. You know, Jeff Bezos is famous for doing something similar. Yep. Are there any, like, heroes in business or... Uh, in history that you have like taken lessons from or maybe that you admire? Oh, well, you brought up Jeff. I'm a big, big fan of him. Um, <laughs> Same. Yeah. Uh, it was, you know, one of the things that I, I like about Jeff that I find inspiring is 
how he he's got his hands in a lot of different things. I was one of my favorite places on the world to go to is Marfa, Texas. And if you go just past Marfa, you'll fly over his, his ranch where they have the blue origin rocket. And, um, I got the opportunity to do that last time I was there and saw the black SUVs run out with binoculars looking up plane as we were touring it. But it's just, <laughs> it's wild that he's kind of focused on that high stakes of initiative, right? L- leaving this plan. And he's doing other things, right? He's got this organization called the long now project where they're building a clock that can tick for 10,000 years. And so the, the thing it's that I'm in I, the cave, right? It's uh, in a cave in West Texas where it's like the clock. And then I think a copy of the library at the Long Now Foundation is uh, in a cave or something along those lines, right? Well, you know, I think you know more about it than I do. I, I, I knew the clock was somewhere that I don't know where, but we should go try to hunt it down and find it, right? I'm, I mean, if the apocalypse happens, I want to at least have, you know, a rough idea of where it's at. Uh, yeah. doesn't when, need to tell me the exact coordinates, but um, it would be, you know, it's, it's supposed to be helpful to reboot civilization. So we I need mean, all the I help we can get. Yeah, we, you and I can track it down. And so that, that, that's one of the reasons why I admire Jeff, I mean, among others, is that he, he's, he's able to think about the extreme tactical, the here and now, and yet he's also able to think about uh, right. eons. And, and being able to toggle between those two mindsets, mindsets is immensely helpful in business. And you see that, you know, you see that beyond Jeff. Uh, you know, I certainly see that in my, my parents even. I see that, you know, you see that in people like Bill Gates, where they're able to deal with the extreme here and now and and the distant and that that's something that is a skill that you have to i think earn like you'd earn muscles it's not something that is instinct you have to you have to really practice being able to do that um and it's something that i've tried to to be able to dedicate my time as i've I've served kind of two roles at mutual mobile sometimes concurrently sometimes separately one is the ceo which i am now and the chairman i happen to be both currently but sometimes i've just been one or the other and the thing that I find the most refreshing about toggling between those two types of positions is that it focuses you, focuses you on being extremely coherent with the day-to-day and the week-to-week, which is the CEO's job, versus the chairman's, which is more kind of the, the month-to-month and the year-to-year. And if you can simultaneously hold those two timeframes in your mind, it allows you to paint whatever future that you want, or at least try to. Um, yeah try to become a better artist, but uh, that's, that's what I found. Is there any uh, research that you're aware of that shows uh, that CEOs who are also the chairman of the board tend to outperform peers in uh, re- you know, relatively similar market conditions or anything? I haven't looked at the research specifically. I know um, there's been somewhat of a crackdown on Wall Street on that. Uh, <laughs> I, I would say probably they are more effective just because Unfortunately, companies try to model conventional bureaucracy. Governance is good and governance is important. But, um, you know, when you, when you start separating out too many duties and delineations, that's what can lead to, um, you know, log jams. So wouldn't be surprised if CEO chairmen are more effective than their counterparts. Yeah. And um, if there's anything you can share, too, I'm curious, uh, how was your first board meeting when you had uh, a formal board and... Yeah. Um, how was the most recent meeting and how do, how do those two, how do those two individuals that you were at those moments kind of differ? Mm, such a timely question. Um, yeah. So our first formal board meeting happened after we sold a minority of the state to WPP. So we finally had people who were on the board that uh, were not, not co-founders of the company. And so today the board is five people, myself and my, um, my two co-founders have, have, we have three seats and, and, and then our investor WPP has two seats. And, and so that was, it was something that um, 
WPP has been a fantastic partner. It introduced a new way of looking at the business where, you know, we were much more, I'd say casual about kind of the results and about the time frame. Having somebody who is a large publicly traded company saying, look, we have a reporting requirement. We really need to look at the business on a quarterly basis. That introduced a level of professionalism that I found as a very helpful lens. You know, so flash forward to today, we just had a board meeting about, about a month ago. And I think it's a true board. It's something that's clarifying. We're able to, we're able to kind of put down our operator hats and put on our, on our director hats and look at the business through a different lens. I don't know if there's been anything that's you know, changed immensely because of that, but um, right. it's certainly been a learning process for me and it, it's, it's made me cognizant of the differences when I've served on other boards that, Hey, if, you know, if you are, if you are a board member, you need to not, you need to not focus on some things while, while paying more credence to others. Yeah. And I've, um, I've heard a similar message echoed uh, a couple uh, friends that I've made over the last couple of years who serve on boards of publicly traded companies, they've kind of imparted a similar message, which I think is uh, fascinating. So yeah, just for context, um, we don't have a board at this point. It's basically just myself and then the other, um, my other two co-founders and then uh, our kind of like VP of ops. And our company is, uh, it's 15 people now full time and we're working with six contractors. However, the number of contractors we're going to be working with over the coming years is um, it's going to be astronomical and it's really exciting because we're going to be able to provide a lot of, um, I would say, uh, high paying jobs for creatives who want to work remotely, uh, meet creatives, meaning like people who want to write, host podcasts, create video media, VR, AR. And that's really exciting for me because it's like, you know, it's been a personal dream. It's been a goal. And we're starting to realize that now. However, awesome. one of the challenges is for creatives, you can't really do your best work if you're always remote. Um, most creatives are introverts. And however, they need some balance of, you know, getting with other creatives. So for people, you know, whether they're CEOs or creatives or engineers who do have the ability to work remotely, who are struggling with maybe what's the right balance of introversion versus extroversion, uh, how do you think about that? And then how does your team think about maybe like, how do your executives think about illustrating that type of, um, you know, work style, if that makes sense. Sorry, that was, that was rambly. Well, not at all. Um, just kind of steeping on that, that question for a second. I mean, one, I think having to produce content is something that, um, you know, I definitely have just a huge admiration for when it's, when it's open-ended and you're creating, you're creating something for, you know, listeners and viewers that you may have not necessarily even interacted with before that, 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 that just seems so challenging versus kind of what we do where it's, it's much more regimented and we're trying to build a technology product, but it, it, it doesn't, it, it, it's, it's kind of line by line. We know what we're building. So I, I can, I can appreciate the challenge there. One of the things that, we've oscillated back and forth with and kind of definitively settled on is that we want, we want to have people not remote as much as possible. Right. Um, and that's just due to the fact that there's a serendipity that begins to occur when you have groups that don't normally interact with each other, run into each other. And it's, you can't, it's just, it's so dynamic. You can't even conceive of what, what may occur, but great example is, um, you know, our design and engineering teams, 
constantly collaborate as a result. Whereas at, at even large companies like an Accenture that Mutual Mobile might compete with, um, they're siloed. Engineering and design rarely gets to talk to each other, or if they do, it's probably because something's gone wrong. Versus a small office like we have in Austin, they run into each other constantly. And so we've just seen a lot of serendipity get teased out as a result of that. And we've tried to figure out ways to create um, create more of that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure with producing content, you also want to give people their own space, right? I mean, if they're, con- if they're <laughs> being interrupted yeah. constantly, they're not going to be effective, right? No, and that's uh, that brings up a really interesting point, which is uh, as a creative or as an engineer, you need some ability to set boundaries where you can't be interrupted for a you know specified period of time. Otherwise, you know you're never going to completely relax and be able to code or be able to uh, you know write uh, three thousand words in a day or whatever it is. <laughs> so, are you scheduling time right now for deep work? Do you? Yeah. Um, you know, do you do that proactively or do you kind of have, does your chief of staff kind of like advise you from time to time? No, you like you, this is going to take three hours. It's not going to take an hour. Um, I'm, yeah. Yeah. I'm extremely fortunate in that we have a, a very strong leadership team here. Um, we have a, a president, a newly appointed president who's been with the company. His name's Pradeep and he's been with the company for a number of years now. And um, he's kind of given me the ability to, to not need to, you know, consume all of my focus with the, with the day to day. And so it's opened up my schedule immensely to, to go out and, and, and meet customers and to kind of strategize and think about the next way to bring in new technologies that we want to, you know, we, we want to showcase to our existing customers. And um, so with that being said, I mean, it definitely, you know, things do make, make their way onto my calendar uh, unavoidably, but I, I try to, not have too much of a regimented day. Uh, I've done that for a while and I think there's a time and place for it, but I'm in a point in my life now where I think I can be most effective if I have a goal in mind and I, I keep, you know, I keep most of my time open to, uh, to working on things rather than getting pulled into meetings about operations or something like that. Right. And um, so is there uh, an example of maybe a recent uh, perfect day or a day where you were like, you know, you're almost like skipping or uh, just found yourself like breaking out into song. It went so great. I love the question. Or screaming in the car, like pumping your fist, excited. <laughs> yeah, I love those days. I know what you're talking about. I'm trying to think of a, of a, of a recent example. I mean, one, I, one thing is that it, I, even though this may sound like somewhat of a contradiction, I try to spend a, a considerable <laughs> amount of time away from the Austin office. I can, because I have a solid team, I can get, I can, I can kind of work, um, from anywhere. I was out in, in Denver for some meetings last week with a potential new customer. And I was able to just kind of, um, you know, after that, not immediately fly back and, and spend some time in beautiful, sunny Denver, getting things done. And, um, when I came back, the, the company was stronger than before when I left and every, every startup kind of goes through that journey, right? When you first start a company and you leave as the founder, as a CEO, you can be sure that as soon as you get back, the company is going to be worse than when you left it. The next stage you leave and you come back, maybe it's neutral, not much has changed. And then kind of the final evolution of that is it's, it's better than before you left and knocking on some wood here. But uh, I think we're kind of at that third stage or approaching that third stage now. And um, you know, it's, it's, it's completely attributable to the, to the leadership team we have in place and getting kind of the goals and um, you know, their incentives aligned with that of uh, the, the board and the shareholders. 
Yeah. And when you're getting incentives aligned, so I'll share a, uh, yeah, just a really quick story. So we recently made our first uh, business acquisition. So we used a, uh, a small amount of debt, like a really small amount, basically just to build up business credit. And our, we're in a great place. Uh, we have a, a long runway. Um, we don't have any, you know, our first round of investment was a safe. So just being at a point where, you know, we're approaching our three-year anniversary and we just acquired a um, kind of like a small Whole Foods type market that yeah. had uh, a great business model. We're doing something different with it. It's really exciting. So what's a, what's a good way in your mind to, on a small scale, kind of introduce like an end of year reward or compensation or incentive for the team that isn't, um, that's going to be remembered, right? Because like you just, mm-hmm. an end of year cash bonus is great. Uh, Equity is awesome. Other types of, you know, incentives, like we could do that. Um, what's your kind of like mindset about that for the stage that we're at and the context that you, the limited context that you have there? Um, what's a good way to kind of like reward the team, even though all of them didn't work directly on the transaction? Uh, I mean, they all played like a critical role of giving me the free time I needed to like finish it kind of. Um, so what's a good way that we can kind of like introduce a great incentive? What's your advice there? Sure. And I imagine that was kind of an all consuming thing for much of the company, even if they didn't work on it directly, they were, they were somehow tied into it. So the fact that you, know, you we were asked to do more work. <laughs> yeah. Well, that yeah. makes sense. And, and, and obviously they, there was an intrinsic piece of it for sure, but ultimately it's, it's nice to be recognized and gratified. And my, my take on that is there's really no way to avoid having it at three incentive levels, right? You need to incentivize people as personal contributors, what they do and what they do alone, you need to incentivize the group and then ultimately the, the, the whole organization. And that from trial and error seems to be the most fair way to do it that produces the greatest um, you know, type of results. So thinking about it from this scenario, again, you, you accomplished something that very few companies do successfully. They complete, it, they complete an acquisition. I think the next the incentive maybe that's discussed or given is forward looking, right? Where it comes into fruition, it kicks in after the integration has been hundred percent successful. And obviously there's levels or levels of that success and, and maybe announcing it at the end of the year, look, we're going to have this great experience now. And then once they hit these goals, these metrics as a team, we're going to go do this. And my thought is, and you, you alluded to it is right. Is the experience people remember a lot of times more than the cash component. There needs to be a cash component for sure, but um, right. way more meaningful if there's a special journey that really money, you know, money can't buy because they were part of it and they get to bring their significant others. I'm sure, I'm sure that will be just deeply motivating and gratifying. Gotcha. Yeah. Great advice. Um, Cause that, that's one of the traps where, you know, we've been trained to get so obsessed with like capital allocation that it's low hanging fruit to get everyone motivated for maybe like the first three to four years. But I think to ask people, you know, to even consider making an investment of like eight years, 10 years, or daring them to think like, not only are we going to survive, but the opportunity to be an executive, like for the next 20 years is here. Are you interested in taking that journey? How do you approach those conversations? And uh, any ideas there to have effective conversations there? I think the problem, I mean, I think one of the challenges I should say is that, is that the, the conversation people can have such different ideas of what that entails. That's why I like boiling it down to a concrete figure and say, look, this is what it will mean to you from a financial standpoint. If we're, 
if we're successful. And, and part of that could have a temporal component where, look, if you, if you're only going to be doing this for the next six months or, you know, a year, you may not want to embark on this journey because you're not going to get those rewards. That kind of can tease out who's saying they want to be a part of the journey long-term versus who truly does. Because when it comes down to when people doing their own calculus around um, how it's going to affect them personally from a comp standpoint, that can be just deeply, deeply clarifying has been my experience. I don't know if you've seen that as well. It seems that way. Yeah. And it's, um, that's a great incentive, I think, for uh, people that are in the sales org to get excited and motivated because I've found the best salespeople to be motivated by, you know, what they provide to the team. Um, and just, they, they want to be recognized of, you know, situations where they kind of like do the impossible because they've been empowered by the team. So I've just found that dynamic to be really fun in services, which is, I mean, it's pretty common sense, but so John, I'm curious, final couple questions here. Sure. Are there any uh, books, podcasts, or maybe TV series or movies that you've been watching recently that you're thinking about? I, I've just finished the book Space Barons, which oh, uh, cool. I'm deeply fascinated by, by space. I got the privilege to invest in SpaceX. I want to go to space at some point. And so I've been trying to, to learn everything that I can about it. And Space Barons, I thought I knew a lot about it and I realized how much of kind of the recent saga with Elon and with Jeff and with Richard that I didn't actually know. And so recommend that that book immensely to anybody who's interested in the topic because there's going to be that neck the next kind of land grab the next type of you know mobile moment i think will be largely uh you know off this planet and uh, it's almost here so yeah a lot of my yeah, focus around that and kind of the peripheral um shows that all relate to that i won't name i won't name them but the <laughs> sci-fi stuff uh definitely been into lately see on the business front um just read bitcoin bitcoin billionaires Fascinating okay. saga too. I don't, it's by the author who wrote the Accidental Billionaires, the saga of, of Facebook, and it's a great refresher to anybody who's interested in, in crypto or um, you know wants to get kind of up to speed on it. I, I enjoyed that immensely as well. Very cool. And uh, yeah, final two questions. The first one: uh, How'd you get the opportunity to invest in SpaceX? And um, if you don't mind sharing, you know, what year and uh, what round did you participate in? <laughs> I'll kind of answer the two together as, as best as I can, given the, given the things that I've signed. I mean, it comes down to serendipity. I, I, I was super fortunate that I grew up in Austin and I, I, I met one of the individuals who was involved hang gliding of all places. Back when I was, I was in high school, I was super into hang gliding and he, uh, he got interested in hang gliding too. And so we, we literally met on a small hill here, hang gliding. And that kind of, that serendipity led to me, getting introduced to some of the people at founders funds and it kind of came through, uh, through some of those connections there. When I did the investment, it was less about the valuation or the round. I think it did it about maybe two and a half years ago or two years ago. Now it was more about, um, just that emotional connection. I wanted, I wanted skin in the game. I, I, I know that I'm going to go to space and just having to think about it. Right. A lot of times when we make investments, we don't want to have to think about it. This was one that I kind of wanted to force myself to at least, you know, have to stay up to speed a little bit on the stuff. So, um, it's yeah. Fun. Yeah. That definitely seems like one where you sleep better at night, uh, and just feel better about yourself knowing that your money's <laughs> working there. So that's yeah. uh yeah, very cool. And, um, John, thank you so much for being generous with your time. I've learned a lot from this interview. It's been very cool to learn more about you and your journey and, uh, congratulations on all the success. Final question here. What's the best way for people listening 
to get in contact with you, whether they're, you know, entrepreneurs, designers, engineers, um, or potential clients. Um, is there a good, you know, email or process or where should people sure. go? Well, Chad, thanks again for having me. I found the discussion a lot of fun and uh, looking forward to seeing you in person in San Francisco or Austin soon. As it relates to getting in touch with me, it's pretty easy. John at MutualMobile.com. And uh, I'm pretty good about email. So if you send me a message and it doesn't look like uh, it doesn't look like somebody asking for a job or trying to sell me something, good chance you'll get a response. <laughs> All right. That's um, yeah, a great way to filter. Uh, John, thanks again. And for everyone listening, we will see you next time. Hey, thanks again, Chad. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word, and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.